Welcome back, everybody. We've got Daniele Bellelli. The return. I think it's been two, three years. I don't know. We tried to estimate it on the podcast. It really doesn't matter. It's been too long, damn it. That's what that's what it boils down to. It has been too long with my buddy Daniele Bellelli. Um, since our podcast, when I was out in LA, he's moved. Uh, the world has unraveled a little bit. We don't talk too much about that. We just talk about how his life has changed and the things that he's up to. And we get into his other podcast that he has, um, history on fire, which is super dope because we, we got to dive in. I mean, I never liked history in high school or in, and I, you know, we, we do talk about this on the podcast, but one thing I love is learning from historians who actually take the deep dive and, and don't have to prescribe you a particular narrative about what it was like in this country uh, during a certain time or who the good guys were versus the bad guys, that kind of stuff. It's been said before that history is taught to us by the winners. Um, so I really appreciate Daniele Bellelli and the work that he's doing because it's cool. It's really cool. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. And um, he, he puts it up he puts it in. This is what's coming through. And um, yeah, I love this podcast. <laughs> it was great. It was very impromptu. Uh, Ob hit me up and he was like, yo, Daniele Bellelli's in town. He's going to be on my podcast. You want to have him? I was like, fuck yeah, let's do it, buddy. Um, super pumped about that. So anywho, that is, that is it. Support this podcast by supporting our sponsors. They make a world of difference and they keep this thing going. When I talk about blood sugar, a lot of people tune out because they think it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic everybody needs to understand. We've actually had quite a few doctors on this podcast that are blood sugar related, uh, whether it's Dr. Michael Ruscio or um, Dr. Paul Celadino, the carnivore doc. I mean, a lot of people have divin- taken a deep dive into this and non-doctors too that are brilliant guys, Rob Wolf, Mark Sisson, many people. So blood sugar is a big topic here. One of the big keys to optimal health is to have balanced blood sugar. But what happens when you eat a donut? Your pancreas releases insulin, which tells your body there's plenty of energy, so now is the time to store fat. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether you eat a donut or drink a glass of orange juice. Low-fiber processed carbohydrates from crackers to chips to cookies to juice all have a similar effect on blood sugar. When you take in a lot of carbs too quickly without much fiber or fat to slow down absorption, you could experience what we call a sugar crash, which leads to low-energy brain fog and weight gain. Uh Uh-oh. And due to the addictive nature of sugar and carbs, once your body brings your blood sugar levels back down, that's when the cravings kick in. And if you give into those cravings, it starts to cycle all over again. So I hope you can see how important it is to maintain healthy blood sugar levels. The question is, how do you do it? Well, one way is to reduce your intake of processed carbohydrates. Uh ho. And make sure you eat fat, protein, and fiber and greens at most meals. But none of us is perfect. We all cheat sometimes. So it just makes sense to have a way to maintain healthy blood sugar day in and day out, even if you have an off day. That's why I recommend a product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. This is an easy-to-take supplement, and it's the result of numerous tests to find the absolute best formula for maintaining healthy blood sugar. In fact, Bioptimizers went through five different formulations before landing on this one. Blood Sugar Breakthrough works to safely lower blood sugar after meals so that you can maintain a healthy weight and redirect carbs to your muscles where they can be burned for energy. This means you'll avoid the worst effects of high blood sugar like weight gain and inflammation while enjoying more stable energy, mental clarity, and fewer cravings. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash kingsboo. That is www.bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash kingsboo and save 10% with code kingsboo10 when you try blood sugar breakthrough. We're also brought to you by my dudes at Organifi. This is uh, a company that has seemingly overnight, you know, become one of my absolute must haves every single day. I absolutely love it. Um, I got a little rundown as you can hear in my voice from screaming so much at uh, the last event here, but completely worth it. And Every day I've been having the greens. Now I'm having them multiple times a day because of the fact that there's so many good things in there that I don't normally eat. Uh, same thing with the red drink, but the organified green juice is just incredible. It has a clinical dose of ashwagandha, 600 milligrams of bioavailable ashwagandha, which helps maintain healthy cortisol levels and aid in weight management. There's 11 superfoods for resetting the body and feeling amazing. 
It is super fast. 30 seconds tops. No shopping, chopping, juicing, or blending. You shake it up in a shaker bottle. It is 100% USDA organic in it. It's all their products. All of their products are absolutely amazing. All of them taste great. I think I mentioned before, um, I like taking the green juice with a little bit of Kratom. Now, Kratom is not for everybody, and uh, this isn't a part of the ad read, so <laughs> this is just my personal experience. This is how I, how I like to do it, and it's an absolutely phenomenal drink. It makes Kratom that does not taste good taste really good, and I'm getting the benefits of all the other things in there. But you don't need to add Kratom to your green juice. That's just the way I've been doing it. The red juice I have is an intro workout. That means I take it during my workouts. It's got a whole host of things. Uh, wonderful mushrooms like uh, cordyceps synesis that help with the cardiovascular system and mitochondrial support. So it's one of the best tools for strength and conditioning and cardiovascular workouts. And I absolutely love it. It tastes great. I have it during my workouts. And all I got to do is bring a ready pack to the gym. I can throw it in my shaker bottle and get it going and sip it throughout my workout. All this stuff is phenomenal. All this stuff rounds out a healthy, balanced diet that I have employed. And um, I just, I mean, I absolutely love Organifi. They keep making some of the best stuff out there. And then in the evenings, I do my gold. I have, I have my gold with about a half a cup of hot water and uh, a half a cup of straight coconut cream from the can. And I mix that up with a little, one of those little... What do they call them? Little blender jobbies, the little, it's not quite a blender. It's just that little whisker guy that you stick in there, the electronic one, uh, the handheld whisker jobber. I think that's the official title of it. But I get that in there with uh, one or two scoops of the gold and a healthy amount. I mean, a, a whopper of coconut cream. And it's like, it's, it's my treat. It's my dessert for the night. It winds me down. It helps dump off the stress of the day. It's got lemon balm and all sorts of other goodies that help me to relax at night. And uh, it's just a phenomenal way to have uh, the arc of my day finished off. So check it out, Organifi.com slash KKP. Use code KKP at checkout for 20% off everything in the store, y'all. That's Organifi.com slash KKP and code KKP at checkout for 20% off everything. We're also brought to you by blueblocks.com. These guys are absolutely incredible. They've got free shipping globally, five business days to USA from Australia, Australian made equals high quality. They're evidence-based from lab work, not mass produced in overseas factories. I like that. They come in non-prescription, prescription, or reading magnification options. This is dope. I didn't even realize that. I've got good vision, but for all of those people who don't, which is a pretty big part of, part of the world's population, um, they can do prescription and they're going to block blue light. You can also send them your own frames into customize into blue light glasses. That's super dope. So you got favorite glasses, you don't want to change the look, you just send it to them and they will make them blue blocking quality so you don't have to get that nasty light at night. They have the most stylish frames for blue light glasses, and they're featured in GQ magazine and Vogue. Uh, I don't read those magazines, but they're they're big magazines, and uh, there's some good looking people on the cover of those magazines. So if they're wearing blue blocks, I'm down. My boy JP Sears, he's down with the blue blocks as well. These guys have all sorts of cool stuff. They they I don't know if they're still there. I think they do, but they have some red bulbs you can buy. You know, when we're talking about blue light at night and TV screens and shit like that, like. You know, my computer, you can put on night shift, you can put your phone on that, but it's still pretty bright. And it's still a good idea to have blue blocks on at night, anytime after the sun goes down for that matter. But I can't change my giant TV. I can throw on glasses in, in two seconds. So I just have those out in the living room on a desk where it's easy to grab. And when I sit down for movie night, once a week with Bear, I toss those on and it's no big deal. Bear's got his own as well. So we can watch movies and not stay up late and not ruin our melatonin production and throw off our sleep cycle. Super important. Check it out. www.blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And you're going to use KKP at checkout for 15% off. That is B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Discount code KKP for 15% off. Absolutely love these guys. Last but not least, we are brought to you by MySoulCBD.com. That's M-Y-S-O-U-L-C-B-D.com. These guys make an incredible, an incredible set of products that are USA-grown, organically farmed, gluten-free, and they come in incredible flavors. This is the best-tasting CBD company on the planet. My favorite 
personal favorite, and I've mentioned this before, but I keep going back to it because it's so damn good, is Watermelon Mint. And uh, this company was founded by Mike Lee, a world-ranked professional boxer, and his sister, Angie Lee, a marketing expert, keynote speaker, and serial entrepreneur after experiencing their own struggles with an autoimmune disorder and anxiety. Um, Not sure what they can say medically here about this and that, but going off topic, like I have felt a dramatic decrease in anxiety. And these are anxious times um, from, from... taking a little bit more CBD. I say it that way because one of the things that they're very pertinent on here is um, making sure that people kind of start small and ramp their way up and figure out what works best for you. Everyone's system is different and there's no standard use that works for everyone. This is this is the nature of all things, to be perfectly honest. Um, there's no one size fits all approach. So don't say, well, so-and-so told me take 150 milligrams and I'm just going to start there. And no, start with as little as you can and feel it and see if you feel anything. And if you don't keep ramping up and you're going to come to a point where you're like, oh, wow, this is working. There's no doubt it is. And what's great about this is that because it tastes so good, you're going to be able to do it again and again and again. And you'll be able to build this habit into your daily and nightly routine super easy because there's no fuss about it. You know, there's certain medicines that are organic medicines I've given my son at night, and it's always a fight to get him in if he's run down. But there's no issue giving him this CBD at night. He absolutely loves it, and he really enjoys it, just like we all do. It's physician-formulated and backed by science. Consistency is key. And um, it's a 0% zero THC. So that's a super important one for a lot of people who get tested. Uh, All their products are zero THC, and they're third-party lab tested. You can find the COAs on their website. And they've got all sorts of different products, from CBD oil drops. This is what I was talking about, 1,500 milligram, the big boy, the watermelon mint. Um, CBD gummies, available in two different strengths, 10 migs and 25 milligram CBD with strawberry, raspberry, orange cream, which I haven't tried, but I I definitely want to try that. Mike, if you're listening, I want to try the orange cream. And coconut vanilla. CBD capsules, alert, dream, relief, chill, and immunity. I haven't tried all of them, but I've tried alert and dream. Um, Both of them are phenomenal. Dream is really good. It's got a little bit of melatonin and some other goodies in there to help you get the best night's rest you can. And there's CBD cream, which is phenomenal. It does not leave an oily residue and have some kind of funky uh, stickiness to it or anything like that. It just goes right in. You can feel it go into your skin wherever there's pain, bumps, and bruises. I'm doing Muay Thai again with my son and doing a little jujitsu and I got some aches and pains. I throw that on and overnight, they'll slowly dissipate and start to move away. And so CBD is um, one of my absolute must-haves. It's a must-have in the arsenal of supplements, and MySoulCBD is the best that I've ever tried. Again, check it out, MySoulCBD.com, and apply code KKP at checkout for 15% off your whole order. That's KKP for 15% off everything at MySoulCBD.com. Without further ado, my dude, Daniele Bellelli. Officially, we're here. Daniele Bellelli, thank you for joining us, brother. Thank you so much for having me. We are... We are making it fit in like down to the second i arrive let's start podcasting and uh, <laughs> perfect yeah we had like i gotta see you i told me you're coming to town and i was like fuck yeah dude is he looking for people to podcast with and he's like yeah man he wants to he wants to do one and i was like oh that's great let's play so i remember it's been two maybe three years it's been yeah, two years yeah you were up at my house in mm-hmm. la yeah i was Last year and a half, I moved outside of LA. I'm like an hour and a half out in this place, uh, Ojai. It's a pretty sweet, smaller place. But that where I was living wasn't a bad spot either. So I yeah, remember us sitting down there and that was fun. That was a good day. I mean, we. I'm trying to trying to remember that. It's funny because it's, it's gone like... Uh, the, the whole weekend seems like a blur. Right, it's like <laughs> we were, two we were, years going for 20 kind we were, of thing. Yeah, <laughs> we were hanging out watching uh, the McGregor and, and Poirier fight. You can't even call it the McGregor fight at this point. Right. The Poirier win. And um, I had a, had a bit of ketamine as I as I have at the fights before, but it's been so long. No, nobody noticed. <laughs> <laughs> really? It, it had been so long. so sober. I, I, I sat down in a, in a, on a couch and I, I remember looking at the screen, but like transporting into it somewhat where I was like, oh, am I walking out? And then the nerves kind of kicked in. Oh, that's right. I was like, no, that's a screen. But then it fully dissolved like all dimensions. It was, wow. I've had interesting, somebody's told me before that um, the experiences you have in any medicine can kind of open up a, um, 
a stronger portal mm-hmm. or stronger bridge. And one thing that's cool about ketamine in particular is that you can access right. those other portals and bridges. So uh, I think when I was coming out of it, I jokingly said, ketamine is the opposite of the sort of discernment. It just dissolves all boundaries. <laughs> it's just everything know, is gone. Yeah, you don't <laughs> yeah. know what the fuck is real or not real, where you start, where you end. And um, thankfully, I was able to come back to reality for the last few fights. I think I, think I watched... Wonder Boy on his back for okay, the first okay. round. And that, that so. brought confusion too, because I was like, didn't he train with Chris Weidman what for so many here? years yeah. and now he can't get up? Like he should be able to get up. And that was like the most confusing piece was staring at him for five minutes on his back. And then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, Weidman left. And then I started having more memories. And I was like, you know, Gilbert Burns might just be a really good wrestler. He's That's a possibility that too, you know? He got up once. But even then, you know, Gilbert Burns still had the double underhook. He's still, you know, just Burns is fantastic. Yeah, he's so damn just, good to watch. Yeah, I think last time we were talking jujitsu, your your daughter, mm-hmm. your partner, lots of stuff like that. I haven't even had time to retrace that podcast and right? think, and think about like, it. What yeah. the hell were we talking about? <laughs> right? uh-huh. yeah. So you, I, it's cool. You your podcast. Um, you have one, at least one podcast right now that's on Luminary. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I do. I do. So I host two podcasts. One is more of a chatty interviews kind of thing. The one you were on, which is the Drunken Taoist. And then the History on Fire is one where basically it's just me researching like a madman, reading a zillion, usually really boring books, but with great facts in there somewhere. And my job is kind of like, I see it as almost panning for gold, right? You're just swishing all this mud around to get those nuggets that then you string together into something that people actually want to listen to. So then, you know, yeah, History of Fire is just me essentially telling a story. It happens to be a real story. It's based on evidence and history and stuff, but it's me just making history a little bit feeling like you watch Game of Thrones kind of thing, <laughs> except the last season that sucks. But other than that, yes. <laughs> I was going to ask the, you. Yeah, not you didn't that care one. for it, huh? Nah. <laughs> As, uh, I didn't mind it. I think it helped having, uh, for whatever reason, to due to travel or something like that, I had to wait a couple of weeks before we watched right. the finale. And I had heard so much shit talking that uh, it, it lowered my expectations. Yeah, you're like, so yeah, I was like, yeah, bad, I was like, yeah, it's pretty on. good. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, all right. You know, yeah. I, I saw I saw kind of the why behind it. I'm sure you talked to Aubrey about that. He he had, you know, all kinds of philosophy on why that had to be the case. Right. They couldn't have done it another way, and that was the truest way to end the show. And and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, you, I, in any regard, I got it. You yeah. Know? So, but yeah, those are essentially the stuff that I do. Are um, those are it? And and the luminary thing is interesting because they did leave a whole bunch of episodes for free out there. So while technically Luminar is behind the paywall, so a lot of my new episodes are behind the paywall, there's a mountain of stuff out there for free. So you Apple podcast or whatever you find. So for people who want to check it out, they can check out a lot of free material before they ever have to make the decision, oh, I actually want to sign up for five bucks a month or whatever that is. And so that's awesome. I feel yeah. better about that because when, you know, going behind the paywall, I was like, eh, you know, I don't like disappearing from, but that's not the scenario. You know what though? I mean, it, all podcasts need, if you're, if you're doing it and you're doing it well, mm-hmm. it has to generate revenue because yep. it's such a time constraint. People are like, oh, you know, it's just an hour long or it's just two hours long. <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, like Paul, I, I talk about Paul check a lot on this podcast when he does a solo cast. I've done many solo casts, mm-hmm. but they're not even close to as detailed as mm-hmm. him. He He's printed out his outline. Yep. He has references to everything. He lets you know yep. which episodes to listen to that go over the details, which books to read mm-hmm. that back up what he's talking about, the science, all of it. And so, yeah, it's a full-time deal. You know what I'm saying? If you want it to be, it and it's, and it's got to pay the bills. But that's, I had just gotten Luminary because of Russell Brand. Oh yeah, of course. And I've loved, obviously, you know, we've... <laughs> From last time until this time, mm-hmm. a lot has transpired in the world at large. Right. And we can we can dive into that, what life has been like. And certainly I, I can understand why you would get out of LA and move to right. Ohio with everything that's transpired. Yeah. But um yeah, Russell Brands had some very interesting takes and he's had some fantastic people on uh throughout this sea of madness we've experienced for the last 18 or so months mm-hmm. uh including Vandana Shiva that was the one where I was mm-hmm. like all right I'm signing up I'm for Luminary. Going for it. Okay. Yeah, she she wrote oneness versus the 1%. Uh 
brilliant lady. I've seen her on Gaia. She was on Food Inc. years ago, mm-hmm. but just a, a brilliant woman. I think she has a PhD in quantum theory, quantum wow. physics. Jesus. And and like is, so she's got the out there and she's got the down here in the 3D realm because mm-hmm. she's glued to the soil. She works with farmers and highly educated in many respects. So her writing that book, not from a conspiracy theorist standpoint, but from a, hey, this yeah. is this, this is, is what we science, know. This is the science, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just really fantastic. So I was like, yeah, that that episode got me on Illuminary. So now I'm excited because I, I got more podcasts to listen to on Illuminary. Yeah, they just signed uh, David Chappelle as a podcast. That's right, Giles was telling me that. He's yeah. been, and he's so using he's, uh, sound effects and storytelling and doing all sorts of cool shit, I yeah, guess is a different yeah, style. Yeah. So that's the gig. Hell yeah. It's interesting because I mean, with podcasting, as you are saying, it's it's such a, I mean, it's not new, new, but it's a relatively new medium where there are all these models to how to make it work. Because it's like, how do you make it profitable for something that's out there for free? That's kind of a tricky process. So, you know, people try listener donations or people try through Patreon or they try, you know, your Amazon link or sponsors or the paywall or selling all the episodes or, you know, there are all these models and none of them are perfect. It's kind of, we're trying, we're sort of groping in the dark, trying to figure out as overall as an industry, like how is that going to work? And uh, and it's tricky. And I think Luminary figured they are going to try one experiment, which is sort of, create the Netflix of podcasting, have this idea that you pay a fairly small fee. I think it's really five bucks a month or something. I think it's even less if you sign up for a year. So it's fairly nominal, the amount of money, but then you get these, let's say, 40 podcasts or whatever many they have right now. And it's a gamble, of course, because nobody knows if uh, the Netflix of podcasting work or if it, you know, if people respond to it or not when they are used to having it for free. So it's interesting out that uh, I like that the experiment is happening because clearly that needs to be figured out. You know, what is if you have a solid enough audience, how do you make sure that it keeps you that keeps the lights on and everything mm-hmm. else? You know, and and it's a hard one because especially when people are used to getting stuff for free. Even the idea of putting money in it, even if it's small money, people are like, what? I have to pay for <laughs> content? It's like, eh, kind of, because, you know, it's free, but it's not, <laughs> you know, people put a lot of time and energy into it. So it's... Uh... Even education, you know, I thought about that before, like uh, working as a coach and then still paying my coaches. I, I thought of like some of the work that that, uh, that I do is is important work and I shouldn't necessarily, it's icky to feel like I should attach a dollar to that. But then at the same time, if I'm teaching somebody something that I've spent years of my life investing in and I have to continue that investment, I want to continue that investment. I don't have to, but you know, if I'm going to go out and pay $30,000 in a year for my continued education, then yeah, I got to subsidize that at the very least. Absolutely. And that comes through on the podcast and everything else, not even just a, you know, dollar for time type Mm -hmm. deal. There's actual extras that that come into that. So it's inevitable because as you said, especially with some certain kind of podcast, the amount of energy you put into it to make it happen. Like I calculated for me, typically for one episode, I have probably anywhere between 100 to 200 hours of work behind it. Damn! Because you have to become kind of an instant expert on the thing. So if I'm talking about, uh, I don't know, Theodore Roosevelt, well, there's a lot written out there about Theodore Roosevelt. Even if I just pick the top books, the top sources, I may have to read uh, 10 books. So 4,000 pages in, just reading and taking notes, yeah, I already put a lot of time in. And then you have to put together the notes, condense them, make them more interesting for people, kind of semi-write a script. It's, it's time-consuming, man. It's, yeah. uh, so it, which is fun, you know, absolutely fun. But clearly that means you don't have time to do other things to pay the bills. So that mm-hmm. needs to pay the bills. And that's, uh, I'm curious to see where podcasting is going to go as an industry, as, uh, you know, what's going to be the model that prevails. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too. Like I was just, I had a guy who wants to get, um, there's a lot of people that work on the business side of podcasts where they work with a group of podcasts. They handle the sponsors. They take a percentage of the sponsorship. They also work to get your numbers up, different mm-hmm. things like that. And I've, I've talked to, you know, buddies in the game, like, um, Simon Rex, you know, and different, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, who plays dirt nasty in his, in his stage life and different people like that who have worked with some of these different companies and, 
there are pros and cons to any of this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but I was talking to a guy who, who recently he was, he wants to get on, um, or get like a, our first, um, sexual toy sponsor. Mm-hmm. That's I'm like, perfect. I think that'll yes. crush, dude. <laughs> yes. I think that'll crush. Like, right. yeah, man, we've never had one. We've had Dr. Chris Ryan, Dr. Wednesday Martin. We've had Jamie Wheel on, who just wrote a whole book on sex magic. I mean, we've got, we've had great guests that are pushing for all of this. Right. And, and certainly, you know, receptive, you know, like those, those shows all did very well from the listenership standpoint. So it'll be, it'll be cool to see if they can, if we can get in with them. Nice. But um, yeah, that's a whole thing, right? Like, all right, cool. We're going to do sponsors. How do you want to do that? Do it at the beginning of the episode like Rogan or do you take more money to do it mid, mid-roll? Does that pan out? Do you do dynamic insertion where it right. somehow gets magically plugged into every episode you've ever done? All those things. And that that the business side of things can take the fun out sometimes. It really so does It is sometimes. nice to have somebody else handle the business yeah. and yep. just you yeah. know show up and do the damn thing the way you want it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, sure. I appreciate that. But yeah, it is, it is very much in the infancy. And um, think about that, like a, those guys, that team in particular came with, from a radio background. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that are trying to take the radio template and apply it. Yeah. And you even see that like in, in like the soundboards and shit where, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, yeah, wipe out, you know, and like the, <laughs> right. these little fucking gag reels and shit like that. Yeah, and some yeah, of the different yeah. podcasts and it's like, that That's, was cool on radio, but yeah, this, this I like quite. I like the intimate yeah. conversation, you know, where it's like less less perfect, perfected in the post production and everything else like yeah, that. I like yeah, it, yeah. I like that style a little bit more. Me too. So tell me what's been going on. Last time we talked so much about jujitsu, and I, I have recently heard that you got your third stripe brown belt now. Oh, yeah, is yeah, that right? Yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah, or I love it. You know, the thing with jujitsu is funny because I started training a million years ago, right? But I always was, I knew that I would never have the time in my life to be the guy who's there five days a week kind of thing. It's like, realistically, I'm going to be able to train two to three times a week. That's all I'm ever going to have. So it's kind of like, you know that you're not going to be as good as quickly as somebody who can put in the everyday type of stuff. But I was like, eh. Who cares? For me, it's like, it's a long-term thing. It's not, uh, I'm not in a rush. I'm not doing it competitively. I'm having fun. So I'm here for the long haul. And, you know, over time you see it pan out and you're like, oh shit, I'm actually getting decent at this game. <laughs> so it's uh, it's fun. But you know, it's, what's fun is like, I notice my my instincts are so lazy in jujitsu because I got way, way back in the day before it was popular, I realized I figured out the hack that many people are not that good at leg locks back then. Today is changing, of course. So I made a figure, okay, all I have to do is take the grappling situation to a leg lock entanglement. And then if I make myself a specialist there, well, now I can compete with people who are better than me. And so now sometimes I'm like, do I really want to pass guard, get position, work? Fuck this, I'm just going to take a leg. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so sometimes I have to give myself the handicaps of like, no, you're not going to leg lock this guy. You're going to try to work the rest of your game because otherwise it just become I do the same stuff over and over. Uh-huh. And like, yeah, yeah, you get perfected, especially when it's the same guys you're going with, right? Yeah, because I mean- That's the, the argument to, to train outside the exactly. gym and to compete every now and then so you get that those different tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, it's fun. It's, it's fantastic. I've been trying to get back in for a while and I've been waiting. We finally got um, Curtis Hembroff, who is one of Eddie Bravo's first black belts. Um he was at 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu. He left when all the nonsense uh, pandemic started. Mm-hmm. He went up to Alaska where he's from, mm-hmm. had a kid. Uh, I think he was going to be a fisherman. I'll probably have him on the podcast to give me the full story, but um, he's back now. I've been hearing he was coming back. He's back now. And so I've been hurt a couple of times training and it was mm-hmm. just like, what the fuck am I doing this for? Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not competing anymore. I'm not yeah. getting paid to do this. And I, I had to tell my son, as a three-year-old, daddy can't run. I have to walk for a year, right? Because of a torn from a leg lock, ah, right? From a torn shit. knee, and I had stem cells in it. Then reheard it, so it was like three grand down the fucking drain. Uh, the stem cells sucks. worked great, but I jumped back on the mat too quick. And um, so, anyway, long story short, I I want to take that approach. I want to take the approach of I'm not in a rush. Yeah, there is no end goal. I'm only going to do it a couple days a week because I had a five-hour. I've been doing the uh, sheepdog with Tim Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And his guys, and it's awesome because you do um, 
probably a three or four hour orientation on Friday night. Then Saturday and Sunday, you spend five hours of jujitsu, five hours of weapons training. Yep. And the five hours of jujitsu was phenomenal. Right. He's got buddies. Uh, Chantry's this fucking giant teddy bear who's also a badass, seven year special forces, 15 year SWAT. With, I think it's a brown belt as well, but he's an inch shorter than me and like uh -huh. 20 pounds heavier. Right. So, so I can't outmuscle him. I can't course. cheat. Yeah. I can't do any, there's no gifts that I have that he doesn't have, yeah. you know? And, and even though I got my black belt in 2016, he's been way more consistent right. in the last five of years, course. right? So and that so, makes a difference. Yeah, it yes. makes a big difference. So, but I had such a blast rolling with those guys and also was uh, metering myself in a way where I would, you know, avoid injury at all costs. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, let me check my ego here, avoid yep. injury at all costs, and then uh, be able to roll again. And that experience was awesome because it like reinvigorated that, oh, mm -hmm. this is something I could still do a couple of days a week. And yeah, for fun, yeah, for enjoyment. With, with Curtis yeah. back and the emphasis on all sorts of shit that I don't know. You know, right. like I, I remember our first jiu-jitsu coach, he didn't want us to train legs because he was teaching guys for MMA. And it's like, oh, if you go to the leg, then you right. can get punched in the face, that kind of shit. And now jujitsu has evolved so much, especially at 10th Planet. Yeah. It's leg locks are a huge part, right? Locks, so right. I'm like, yeah. oh shit, it's like learning a second language. I got to get back in there just to figure out that part of the game. You know, there's a trippy story. I don't know if you ever heard it. That's uh, why there was such a prejudice against leg locks. And, you know, there are a few theories about it. But one of the theories, which is fantastic, is that... What happened, there was the Gracie lineage, but that wasn't the only jiu-jitsu lineage in Brazil. There was also uh, Osvaldo Fadda who took it in a direction that was completely different because the Gracies were primarily teaching upper class kind of targeting a population that was somewhat scared of urban crime. So there was this idea, we'll teach you how to defend yourself against the criminal poor people. Fadda went the other route. He was the Robin Hood guy. So he went like straight up in the favelas and is, he really believed in the idea of jujitsu as helping form people and kind of help them become better human beings. So he thought for, you know, if somebody had money, he, they paid. If they didn't, they didn't. He would make geese out of rice sacks. I mean, he was like as ghetto as it gets, right? But in, with a very kind of noble attitude behind it. At one point, I think he was in the 50s. I, don't quote me on that because I don't remember the exact time frame. But like the two schools in a very respectful way, but decided to have a showdown. And the Fada guys beat the Gracie guys 12 to 0. Like every match they won by leg lock. And one of the things that like some of the Gracie guys then had is like leg locks don't cut, it's cheating. You know, that's like, and also because there, there was clearly some racism within Brazilian society, some of them had like, oh, that's the black guy's technique. That's mm. like, they have to do that because they are not as good at jujitsu, they are cheating, right? So then from there on, there was kind of this prejudice against leg locks as like, ah, oh, that's plain dirty. That's not the real thing. That's and I'm such like, a crazy story because my coach originally before the Vieira brothers came in, uh, his, 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 he got his black belt from Half Gracie. Oh, right, So right. that makes total sense why he would have been anti. Right. You know, so not really looking. Kind of that tradition. <laughs> that, and who knows, you know, you hear these stories and I'm sure there's some mythology attached to it, but I'm like, makes sense. I can see that. So yeah. it's, uh, it's fun. That's hilarious. Yeah. I remember I, I we've had. So my coach, uh, AKA Leandro Vieira is mm -hmm. the youngest of the three brothers. They would bring in guys once he, once he had his own gym out in Milpitas, South San Jose kind of area, they'd bring in all the checkmat guys. Right. And there were so many great ones, but mm -hmm. I remember them coming through and, and all the stories were from the favelas. Right. Right. So like, that's another thing that yep. resonates out of that story was like there, one of them, I forget his name. He was talking about growing up there and, when he was young, everybody wanted, it was like soccer was your way out. Uh -huh. And then he remembered when it clicked for him that jujitsu was a potential as right. a way out. And it was only been just one avenue. It was you get great at soccer and that's it. Right. Or you don't make your way out, right? Yep. Now yep. it was like, oh, you could do jujitsu too. All right. And he said they would roll on dirt, mm -hmm. the dirt floor that was their living room. And uh, there was one guy in the neighborhood who had a sponsor, so he had one gi. <laughs> and the one gi that he had, he didn't have a belt yet, of right? Course. He couldn't even get his white belt, but he had that one gi sponsored. And so they would take turns getting to use the gi for the different grips. <laughs> but I was like, that is so awesome. That's, and he shared yeah. the gi because he wanted them right. to be able to experience it. The you know? other like, guys too will learn it. Super cool thinking about that, like the difference in... It's something we get. I remember Henry Rollins talking about that, like why travel is so important. Mm -hmm. 
because you break out of the mold of the small town or the small state mm-hmm. or the small country or whatever that is. And you get to see how other people live with less or more yep. for that matter, you know? And Absolutely. like, what is the history in these places and how do they get down? And just the mental image of that is, is a really refreshing thing to uh-huh. see like, yeah, fuck yeah, dude. There's people doing jujitsu on third floor somewhere in the world right this second. Yep. And there's people that became world champion that started off yep. like that. You know, Absolutely. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. Those are the good. In fact, that's why to me, the Osvaldo Fada story is one of those great jujitsu story that people kind of know, but not that much. I'm like, man, there should be way more spotlight on that story because it's, it's a happy one. You know, you like so often you hear these guys where you hear a story and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then you dig a little deeper and like, oh, there's some really dark stuff there. You know, that's <laughs> a little disturbing. Fada seemed like just a all around good story. Now, if you guys know more and there's something terrible, please don't tell me, don't spoil my fantasy because I like <laughs> it. But, but you know, that's what it seemed like from the outside. So I'm like, oh, I, I dig that. Have you done any of the history shows on Jiu-Jitsu yet? I've done one, I did two episodes on uh, ju- like the transition from Japanese Jiu-Jitsu to Judo. So I did kind of the Jigoro Kano story and the creation of Judo and then the influence that has on martial arts as a whole. I did, of course, in speaking of judo, bring up jujitsu a little bit, but it was like a side note. It was mm. like a 10 minute thing about just where, where judo goes and the variation and what it creates. But that was it, it wasn't specific on jujitsu. Mm. But- uh, you, got, you got plenty there then. Yeah, there's That's a cool. lot there. Tell me, tell me about some of your favorite episodes that you've done on history. So uh, there's a bunch because I mean, the beautiful thing about being your own boss in that regard is that I don't have anybody telling me, like I only cover topics that I think are going to be cool and I'm going to enjoy spending a hundred hours <laughs> researching. So it's, um, but some of the ones, let's say, so I did a few kind of combat sports one that were, one I did about Jack Johnson. That's a fantastic story. First uh, African-American heavyweight champion in boxing at a time where racism was off the chart. And Jack Johnson is just such a fun guy over the top. There's a story about Jack Johnson that everybody uses because it captures him so perfectly. It's how I opened this three-part podcast. Uh, Jack Johnson, after he started making his money, he'd like driving fast cars at the time when cars were barely new kind of thing. And he got stopped by a cop and was like, hey boy, you know, you were speeding, you was money now. And back then you could pay your fine on the spot, which I'm sure he gave no rise to any corruption or anything. But like, <laughs> so Johnson's like, how much do I owe you? The guy's like, $50. He's like, here is a hundred. He's like, no, I don't have change for, no, no, no. At two hours from now, I'm going to be driving the same way and I'm going to be doing the same speed. So let me pay your hand. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine a black dude in the 1910 or something doing this? It's like, whoa, that's, that's powerful. That's like, so Johnson was fun because he's such a defiant character. Then there's, uh, I did the Jigoro Kano one and I just did, uh, I just released a couple of episodes on the Bruce Lee story, which I find fantastic. Like Bruce Lee's biography is just really tricky. Yeah, we saw that. And it was funny because um, one of the, you know, Ryan Giles and, and Ian and I were, were looking up recent stuff. And um, it's funny because, I mean, Ian had seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino, but yep. he hadn't he hadn't caught that that was like supposed to be Bruce Lee, right? right? In the yeah, film. Yeah. And this is huge. You know, I remember when this came up and um, was it Shannon? Yeah. That, that, yeah, Shannon she obviously- yeah, She's pissed. Understandably. Legit, yeah. understandably pissed, yeah. right? Because of this. But unpack that for us because I think this is, this is a- this is a funny thing, but I wanted to know like what- obviously you side with the Lees on that. Um, but, but unpack that because I think it's a fabulous movie. I love Tarantino's yeah. movies. I like the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I am heavily biased on this story because I'm friends with Shannon and all of that. So that may be, that may tint my perception. But like the way I see it is, uh, you know, in the movie, the way they play it is they have Bruce Lee being a ridiculously cocky, arrogant. He comes across as a Conor McGregor kind of guy in the latest with this very, and he gets into a fight with the stuntman and they kind of end up even in a way where, it's even, but it looks like the stand. The vibe is the standman is doing great, kind of thing. That's what they. And the um, that's the Brad Pitt character who played it. Now, the thing that I found weird that to me was uncalled for is that you could have that scene. Like, if you want to build 
the Brad Pitt character as a badass. You can, absolutely. You can even put Bruce Lee in there. You can even do well with Bruce Lee. There was no need to make Lee sound like a complete asshole, you know? Especially because the way I see it is there aren't that many people in the world that across the board people love, right? You know, somebody's hero is always somebody else's villain kind of thing. Bruce Lee is one of those rare cases that you go anywhere and people like him. Kind of like, oh, Bruce Lee, of course, how can you not type of thing. So he's like, why do you have to turn the one guy? Like, <laughs> there are so few already. Why do we have to? <laughs> Especially when it's not necessary for the story. You know, you could do the exact same thing, having him more. He can be cocky. That's fine because he was cocky. But from what I've read, from what I, the vibe I've got from all the sources is that while he definitely was cocky, he did not have this asshole vibe. Like one of the things that he was renowned for, at least in Hong Kong, um, the American side is there's more of a question mark, is that like Jackie Chan used to say that Lee was the opposite of all the movie stars because he would treat everybody on the set, the workers and stuff, as good as anybody could ever treat them. And he would always be fighting with the bosses. You know, he was always mm. kind of arguing with the top executive about where we're going with the movie, this and that. But with the people, quote unquote, below him, he was always cool, always pleasant, always. So kind of to turn him almost into the opposite of that, to me, seems like a stretch. And, you know, there are stories like, uh, you know, Jean LaBelle tells of like, yeah, he did uh, on a movie set pick up Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee got really mad and was like, let me go or I'll kill you. And he's like, no, because if I let you go, you will kill me. <laughs> <And> so <they laughs> are, but that's a that's more like a joke. And he wasn't, yeah. he did not have that asshole-ish vibe to it all. So I did not understand why Tarantino had to, had to go there and double down on it. Like, because in the Rogan interview, he just went like, you know, you don't expect history from Tarantino. It's fine. You know, he had a movie where Brad Pitt kills Hitler, right? He's like, yeah. so I'm not expecting accurate history. But then he doubles down and he's like, no, no, that's how it was. That I'm like, that seemed like a stretch. That yeah. was my vibe on it. Yeah. But what was yours? Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, like I, I, I everything, the, the biggest piece I think is, and not, I haven't done a ton of research into Lee. My, my first foray into in mixed martial arts with proper training was from a Jeet Kune Do guy, oh, nice. VPM, Vince yeah. Mazzola, out in Scottsdale, who trained under Dan Inosanto, who, as you know, of course, yep. is you know, one of Bruce Lee's best students. And so like that lineage, and then from there, started to dive into some of more of the philosophy behind him, you know, and like see who who is the spiritual yeah. side of Bruce Lee, right? And I've gained so much from that, yep. so much from that. And there he has... Um, it's funny because you talk about like, if you want to win an argument or a debate, have like a Gatling gun of one-liners mm -hmm. that are just ready, ready for you. Ready to you know? go, yeah. Right, and so like in, in coaching people, so many come from Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. Like it's not enough to know we must do. Right. right? There's just, there's, there's things like that that just roll off the tongue that hit something well beyond what your ears perceive. Mm -hmm. You know, and so many of those are there for me when it's like, yeah, I know to wake up in the morning early so I can get in the sauna and the ice bath before yep. my kids get up and before I have to parent and do all the shit, before I have to go to work and do all that stuff and do everything in between. And it's yep. like, I know all those things, but unless I'm doing them, I'm missing out on the embodiment of that action, mm -hmm. right? And so like, that's one example of probably a million yep. that I've gained from him, you know? So uh, when it went down, I've, I've sided with Shannon on a lot of things, you know, when it when it comes to, how we view because she's mm -hmm. a living, she, she's, she's right there. Yep. Right. It's not yep. like she's the great, great, great granddaughter no. or some shit like that. Or, you know, I remember when, direct um, connection. Yeah. When, uh, Dan Carlin did, uh, the wrath of a con yeah. and talked in the first episode about how far removed we were from Genghis Khan, yeah. we could actually do that. And he mentioned that at some point, there could be a series like this on Hitler and Nazi Germany, but it's too close to us right of now course. to do it, right? Yeah. Like she's not Genghis Khan removed. She's no. right there, yeah, right? Yeah, so like yeah. we have to value that and yeah. take, and, and I think that's that's important. And at the same time, the movie was awesome. The music was you awesome. Know? But, was but awesome precisely movie. for that, I felt it was yeah. uncool. Like to me sometimes- yeah, it didn't, If it didn't need to be in that way, then yeah. why, did we do, why did we do it that and, way? And right? it's kind of the same thing on the Game of Thrones thing for me. It was like, you could run that storyline but you like skip about six passages from to go from point A to point B that makes it like 
Quite a bit. You're in a hurry to finish. Come on, it's like give the character a little more reasoning for why there's this turn. You know, mm. like show me a little more. Like, uh, so I don't. You're talking about with Daenerys getting yeah. killed by Jon Snow, or the, or, or the, the, the or Arya Stark. Like she spent like six, how many seasons like to just for vengeance, and then she gets there, and the other dude is like, "Look, you're gonna die if you do that." And she's like, "Oh, you're right. I'm gonna go." And he's like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She has done that for yeah. her. Give her a little more reason. Like, if you want her to go, that's fine. But build it up a little, you know? Yeah, she just turns the pieces out. Yeah, he's like, I, ah, okay, that's cool. I didn't mind that she that that's how the the King of the White Walkers died. No, know? that was fine. I didn't fine. mind that at all. I was cool yeah. until that episode. Yeah. Uh, until that, the first three, I was still cool. But to me, it's like, that's... That's character building. That's like storytelling. In any storytelling, you need to have good reasons why the characters are doing what they are doing. And you need to, we need to click. And so to me, when I see something that is there in an unnecessary kind of way or where downright it seems counter to the character because it skips some steps, I feel like, ah, what the hell, you know? And in the Tarantino thing, I feel what the hell because you are doing something clearly provocative that's going to piss people off for no particular reason. Because you could have done, you could have built your movie around it without that controversy, including... So I'm like, why? You know, what's the... What's needed? But again, Tarantino is fantastic. You know, his movies are great. Kill Bill is one of the greatest things ever. So it's like, you know, it is what it is. You 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 got to take the good with the bad, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like... So, but yeah. But then other episodes of then the combat sports one, that's kind of one trend. I've done a whole lot of Native American history. Mm. I've done a series on a biography of Crazy Horse. I did one on like the clash, the war for the Black Hills, uh, Little Bighorn and all that stuff. I did Have you another... done anything on Quanta Parker? No, yet. I won't. Okay. To. Yeah, there was... Um... There was a midnight and the summer moon. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That, you know that one is a weird one. Yeah. So, so it was funny because I had multiple guests on the podcast tell me, "You got to read this one." Yeah. It's like the the, the the real history of Texas, you know, and all this shit. And I'm living yeah. here, and I've I've loved Native American tales and things of that nature, just in connecting in many ways through the plant medicines and things like that, not just here in North America, mm -hmm. but Central and South America. So I've always had that draw. My boxing coach when I was mm -hmm. in MMA was uh, a Mayan elder as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, he'd take me to the Native American mm -hmm. Reservation in Northern California for traditional sweat lodges and plant yep. medicine ceremonies. So always had that connection. And I read the book and they talked about the Comanche as like really having no spiritual practice mm -hmm. of all the the tribes, yep. you know, being nomadic and and you know if savage applied to any of the tribes, it applied to the Comanche. That type of feel, yeah, right? Yeah. And I was talking with Dr. Will Tegel, who is probably a you know le le less percentage of Native American than is necessary for a college grant, but right. he still has the blood and he's studied under Bearhart Williams. He's been on my podcast and Bearhart was a mentor of his and a very close friend. He's written several books, PhD in psychology, PhD in physics, brilliant, mm -hmm. brilliant dude. And an elder in every sense of the word, he's 81 now. So literally and figuratively, he he's an the, elder, yeah, right? So meets all the criteria. And when I told him about that book, he said, you know, one thing that was curious to me was the author never sat with a Comanche elder yep. to yep. verify any of this. Yep. And I was like, how do you write a book yep. about the Comanche and you don't interview a Comanche elder? Well, like that, that is insane. I'm afraid the answer is because that book is kind of a hit piece. Like mm. he's written in a way that... I mean, never mind the fact that there's a lot of stuff in there that's historically inaccurate, that just flat out wrong, you know? So I think the book has had a lot of success because it's well-written, so that's a plus, but it's really more historical fiction than reality because there's a bunch of things that he threw in. He at one point mentioned the Comanche were the only tribes to ever breed the new kind of horse, totally not true, the Nespers did before and in a big way. Uh, he mentioned uh, like a Spanish defeat being uh, the greatest loss of life they ever had, not even close to what happened. So there are so many that are so easily verifiable where he decide to go a wrong way. I have no idea why, if it's for laziness or what. But I'm like, okay, so there are multiple warning signals there that there's something less than precise about the nature of the historical research. And then some of it are kind of what you are describing, which is there's a sort of a veiled racism pervading the book where at one point he speaks about like the first uh, kind of Anglo settlement in Texas. 
and he refers to it as the first human settlement in Texas. And you're like, whoa, time out. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> that tells something about where you're coming from. You know, yeah. That's kind of a problem. Mm-hmm. Or he does have a thing where he speaks about Comanche practices as like, barbarism before the light of Christianity arrived. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what you do with history. There's way too judgmental, way too. And the feeling that I get is that when there are multiple historical sources telling different stories about the Comanche, he unfailingly picks the one that put the accent on the most absolute savage aspect of it all. And I'm not advocating that one should sugarcoat things or romanticize cultures, because clearly in Comanche culture, there was a lot of heavy, tough shit that we would look at it today and go like, damn, these guys were a little intense in a disturbing kind of way. But there's also a ton of other stuff. So if you isolate like 20% of the culture and that's all you do, and then you hype it up even more than reality, I'm like, eh, that's to me, it looks more like a hit job than, uh, yeah. than good history, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I, I, I think Will Tegel had also talked to me about um, even like scalping, like that, mm-hmm. had been a, that had been learned from Europeans. I think the scalping part was honestly kind of universal, like a lot of people did it. Even Like in native culture, there was scalping before Europeans. Did Europeans also encourage it with bounties on scalp? For sure. But as having been here before, yeah, he was here before. Not just here though. Like if you look at like Siberia, you had scalping in Siberia among tribes. You had so that's one of the. I think scalping is kind of funny actually because what it is is essentially is the tradition of taking your enemy's head. You know, you need to log around the whole head. That's a pain in the ass. Can we <laughs> it's just a lot scalp? of weight. Can we just scalp? It's not economical when you're traveling so, big distances. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, you read the Skitias or other like ancient Indo-European, tra- you read this thing about like the enemy skull, you drink out of your enemy skull kind of thing. Somebody got lazy in the process. It's like, how about we just do a scalp? It's close enough. You know, it's <laughs> like, but yeah, that's kind of a universal. You find it all over the place. So that doesn't, you know, to me is like, yeah, you do find cases of scalping in North America before contact with Europeans and you find it archaeologically where you can tell that somebody was scalped. Big deal. That doesn't mean that, I think that's the problem that sometimes it's so black and white that people are either oh, natives always hug trees and kissed each other and there was never any issue. Or they are these bloodthirsty savages that are so disgustingly evil that it's like, they are people, you know? They fought, they had their wars, they did bloody things. When you compare it to what was going on in Europe, way less than what was going on there. But it's not to say nothing, you know what I mean? It's like, so people tend to like, when they find the seed of truth somewhere, then I don't know why the way human mind works that way. They want to take it to the absolute extreme where it's yeah. no longer reality. So it's like... Well, it's funny too, I think in Europe, like I remember going, I fought in Nottingham, England was my uh-huh. only fight in Europe. And um, having the majority, the vast majority of my heritage comes from the UK. I was yeah. like, this is fucking rad. We're riding, um, riding around on trains and uh, the underground. And we're, we're out in Nottingham. It was beautiful because it was so much countryside. Mm-hmm. So I was really happy I got to stay there for a week. And then we nice. did a few days in London for the tourist shit. But being out in the countryside, you know, going to Sherwood Forest, mm-hmm. seeing the major orc meditating next to that thing, like yep. seeing, like feeling thousands of years in the presence of that. Uh, Robin Hood, all of that. But then we went to... We went to like a, an old dungeon that had like different types of torture devices. And I remember Aubrey <laughs> talking about this. And I think Rogan talked yeah. about this too um, in different places in Europe. But when I was in England looking at this, it blew my mind. I walked through with Tosh and it was before we had kids, obviously. It blew my mind how many torture devices had to do with sex organs. Oh, yeah. I was like, fuck, dude, this is way way fucking beyond cutting someone's scalp off. This is fucking way beyond. Even even when Jocko did the the raping of Nan King and he talks about, Mm -hmm. you know, pregnant women being bayoneted in the city courtyard and all the family members lined up and forced to watch as she's raped to death with the, with it. Sorry, if there's children listening, um, with the unborn child spilled out of her belly. Yeah. That is as gnarly as it gets. Right. Yeah. 
But then when you see like the torture devices, it's like, hey, like I'm not saying I'm not saying a raping of Nan King is is it's it, uh, there's no order. No, to, to, when you, know, you get to that yeah, point, you to that point, right? Evil to the tenth degree. But the planning to create a device, yeah, right. Like the the, the the time that would go into that of this is what we'll do with our enemies. This is how we'll get the answers. This is how we'll torture. I mean, like people talk bad about um, what's the 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 little spot in Cuba. Uh, Guantanamo yeah, Bay, yeah. right? I've yeah. been to Guantanamo. I haven't been on the bad side of Guantanamo right. in terms of being interrogated, but you know, like they're not doing that. No, that's not like- <laughs> compared to this stuff. No, it, and right? you're right. Like and it makes you wonder Europe. about the psychology there. It's kind of like, hey, honey, are you uh, coming too bad? It's like, no, sorry, I need to stay up to plan a little more. How we're gonna torture people, so I need to, I need to turn in this design soon to the prince. So let me work. Yeah, it's like, it's like Princess Bride. Yeah, you know, the guy exactly. that's that, the, the torturer, right? The torturer guy. But but stretching <laughs> yes, someone so. on a table, that's not. That's the microdose. Yes, like that's what they start off with. Like, hey, we're gonna stretch you out, right? And then we'll go to your penis, yeah, and your yeah, balls yeah, and your yeah. butthole and everything else with spikes. And it's like, fuck, dude, like the holy shit, this happened for yeah. thousands of years. People, uh, by the way, Princess Bride, greatest movie ever, but yes. <laughs> the, the, yeah, that shit is, is disturbing how often the human mind goes into these really dark places. And then you wonder about these people because it's like, how do you go from doing that to then living your day-to-day life, being a parent to your kid, being, I'm sure, having sometimes pleasant interaction with people, being a good friend to somebody, and then you go torture. It's like, what the hell? How do you... It's disturbing. So say it would be least. a gear shift. I mean, even thinking of like some of like the, the, some, the person who would engage in beheading. Uh-huh likely has a switch that's flipped when they put the mask on. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like there's something yeah. like, you know, like, okay, I'm going to, once this mask comes on, I enter into a different mode yeah. of being and it's compartmentalized yeah. as opposed to, you know, because you couldn't live in darkness. You'd probably end your own life. Absolutely. You know, or, yeah. or you've met, made pleasure out of that thing, out of torturing somebody so that it truly is something where it's like, that's who you oh, are, man, right? I've been I've yeah. eating this, this uh, Wellington pie or beef Wellington or whatever, and then and that's okay. <laughs> right. But tonight, when I get to torture this guy, ah, no, like, that's, that's, the good that's, deal. The, that's the dessert. Yeah. That's what. That's why I live. Wow. Yeah, there's some weird stuff there. It's because uh, yeah, the executioner at least is like, eh, you know, I'm cutting somebody's head off. It's not exactly friendly, but it's a quick death. It's if they are sentenced to death anyway, somebody got to do it. Uh, but like torture, that's a whole different level. That's mm-hmm. like where you're really just working on making somebody miserable. It's like, whoa, that's an entirely different psychological process. But yeah, yeah, one of the things, okay, actually, this is another one. So because so many episodes in history tend to be disturbing, you know, so much of history is the record of warfare and conflict and this, that, and the other. Once in a while, I do find the need to just lighten it up a little. So one thing that I was chatting with over yesterday about, like one couple of my favorite episodes ever had basically no violence in it, which is rare because so many of them are very violent. And there's the life of this one guy, Ikkyu Sojun, who was the illegitimate son of the emperor of Japan at the late 1300s. And he becomes this fantastic Zen master who's as unorthodox as it gets, because his priority was very clear. His priority were he likes Zen, he also liked women a lot, and he liked to drink. And to him, all of those were paths to spirituality. You know, he did not see, because his whole thing is there is no separation if you approach it in a certain way between sacred and profane. Uh, ordinary life can be as sacred as the biggest ceremony if you approach it with a certain consciousness. So to him, the separation was completely artificial. It kind of made fun of all the very strict Zen approach to certain things, only, of course, to do it behind everybody's back kind of thing, because that's usually how it works when you create a hypocrisy that you can live with. But like the dude is so funny. He's like everything you read about him, he's hilarious. He has a huge impact on Japanese cultural history, managed to have a great time in the process, managed to make people around him happy. So he's not like the, you know, kind of, praying cult leader kind of thing. You know, he's a sweet guy. I was like, ah, for once, just a 
pleasant, happy tale. You know, I can I can use a break from the heavy stuff sometimes. So that one I had a blast. That's awesome. Uh, What's the which number is the episode? Uh, it's forty something. I so that's the one in the freebies. Right? Yeah, it cool. Is. We'll link to that in the show so, notes for people. Yeah, that one is a. Uh, it's a mellow one, you know, is um, listen with your kids unless you have issues about sex because there's a lot of sexuality in that one because <laughs> uh, he really likes sex. <laughs> That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I know you, I know you got a jam here uh, shortly, but... What um what have you got on the horizon? What do you want to speak to that's that's fresh and what's alive in you right now? What's coming up? So speaking of lighthearted stuff, I have a nice three-part series of the wars of religion in France between you know Catholics and Protestants decide that their theology is a little bit different. So of course the way to solve it is by murdering each other for a few decades. <laughs> so that's a, that's a happy one. There's a, that's that where by the way there's the real red wedding where they invite they try to make peace by having this Protestant um, prince married this Catholic princess. It's like, oh, it's gonna work out. They have the wedding, and immediately after, they kill all the Protestants. So it's like, wow. yeah, it's uh, it's some weird stuff. So there's that. I'm doing I'm doing one that uh, I think I raised some serious question in my daughter's mind because she was like, hey, do you have time to do this with me now? I'm like. I will give me half hour because I'm finishing something with these super tough, sweaty 300 gay guys, but I'm going to be, and she's like, huh, what? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a trippy story about ancient Greece where you have this, uh, in the city of Thebes, they create these elite corps, like they are top-notch infantry where these 300 guys were actually 150 homosexual couples. And the theory behind it is that nobody wanted to look bad in front of their lover. So on the battlefield, they are going to be braver than anybody because they want to mm. look their best in front of the one they're into. So I was like, wow, that's a, that raises so much trippy stuff about gender roles and the way people conceive of gender roles today and stuff. So yeah. that's kind of fun. Yeah, that's super interesting. So those are, uh, what else do I got? Uh, oh, one that's going to be fun is... Um, there's a tale of a, a siege of Jerusalem back when the Assyrians were kind of peace because the Jewish people stopped paying the tributes. So the Assyrians were pretty peace. And the Assyrians wiped out everybody at the time. You know, they were, they were the best uh, army in the world at the time. And so they show up and uh, they destroy the entire countryside. They have already destroyed 20 years earlier. There were two Jewish kingdoms. They destroyed the first one. Those guys basically disappear from history as the 10 lost tribes. There are only two tribes left. If they and they destroy their entire country. Now it's only down to Jerusalem. If they take over Jerusalem as everything said they should based on logic, there will be no Judaism. There will be no Christianity. There will be no Islam. And it's only because something happens and there's debate on what happens and they decide to lift the siege that Judaism survive and as such you don't have Christianity and Islam. And it's one of those what ifs that really blows your mind because it's like these all rolled over one siege and one siege gone differently, basically the entire history of the world after that would be completely different. Because can you imagine like what the world today would be without... The, the three, three big, big Western religions—it's yeah. like yeah. you can't even begin, right? Because there are so many repercussions that whatever you touch, you would have been affected, and you're like, our wow. calendar, day-to-day -day shit, yeah, day-to-day -day shit, big <clears throat> shit, philosophical stuff, attitudes—it's insane. And to think that all of history could flip basically on a coin toss of one event that today nobody remembers. You know, you need to be some real serious nerd to, oh yeah, that's siege. Clearly it's like, who knows about that stuff, right? And all of history changes because of that. Did you ever see the show Sliders? No, I was didn't. on in the 90s. I think Jerry O'Connell was the star. Do you remember that show, Giles? Mm -hmm. So it'd be like same world, different dimension. Right. And, it, and it's Earth. Uh, they travel through some portal and they basically take one historical thing, like no asteroid impacts the earth, mm -hmm. dinosaurs still exist, but humanity has somehow evolved together yeah. with them. Um, or Hitler wins and yep. the entire world is held under a one world yep. government, which is eerily kind of how this is shaping right <laughs> now, right? But but um, they 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 have, uh, you know, the, the, that's the premise of the show. But I, I think that would have been yeah. a hell of an episode. Those that would are have been the just what teed ifs, up. Right? That's exactly yeah. right. That's so. like the what if, because it's if it can bring it back to like one 
pivotal moment in history that changes everything. That's a pretty yeah, big one. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that's what I mean about History on Fire is I get to play with so much different stuff. I got to play with very, Bruce Lee, that's like 1970s. And then you go back to 2,700 years ago, and then you go back to the 1500s. And you get to, you know, each series is its own thing. So I get to kind of, I have all of history sort of spread out in front of me and I can go, I want to go here now. Okay. How, the how next. much, how much, sorry to cut you off, but sure. how much of this, as you get through it, goes against the common narrative of what you were taught growing up? Because I remember <laughs> at 19, I think it was the same week. No, it couldn't have been the same week, but it was, it was the same year. Uh, I was in junior college. It was the same year that 9-11 was. Uh -huh. And they they had Indigenous Peoples Day. And I was yep. like, oh, cool. Let me go check that out. And it was on Columbus Day. Yeah, yeah. And they they rewrote what everything that I had been taught of about course. Christopher Columbus. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Like that was a, like a old, that yeah. was a paradigm shift. Like this dude was hanging people by their wrists above yeah. boiling water and steaming them right. slowly to death. Like, yeah. you know, like, like that, that's, that's a whole different, like nobody He's getting taught that in school, nah, right? None nah. of that. Yeah. So I wonder how much of history as you take the deep dive actually goes against what we're taught growing up. I think I was kind of a nerd as a kid. So I read a lot of history. So I would kind of stumble into things that maybe like were not the stuff that was in school, but I would, so to me it was less surprising because it's like, oh, of course, doesn't everybody know that? And then I go like, oh no, because that's not how it's done in school. So there are definitely stuff like that. And in many cases, in some cases, it's like your Christopher Columbus example, where it's a complete paradigm shift. In other cases, it's weird. Like it's just, uh, they know two pieces of information and they lack. Like once I was talking with Dan Carlin, because I told him one series I've done that I love was about Caravaggio, the Italian painter. And Dan was like, I mean, he's a good artist, but what's the hook there? And I was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Don't think Italian painter, think Tupac and Tupac being an Italian painter in the 1600s. And that was like, okay, tell no more, I got it. That makes perfect <laughs> sense. Because Caravaggio was a gangster. He killed a guy in a duel, was wanted for murder, and at the same time painted the greatest masterpiece of the end of the Renaissance. And so he's like, like, so even growing up in Italy, I knew Caravaggio, but I was like, oh, he's the guy who painted that stuff. It's cool. I like it. And then when you, I started diving into the background story, I'm like, oh my God, this is so much more interesting than I thought. So you do get that a lot sometimes. Awesome. You have a little bit of knowledge and you dive deeper and you're like, oh, there's a whole world behind a little bit I knew. And that makes it fun. Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I know we had to squeeze it and fit it in, but this is phenomenal, brother. I always love thank getting to you. sit down with you. This was fun. And uh, man, we did it. Like we squeezed so much in one hour. <laughs> we made it happen and I can still make my flight now. So okay, brother. we are good. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you.